You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Welcome to another edition of TopCast, the internet pinball radio show. Tonight on TopCast, we've got a game designer, somebody that worked for DDE slash Sega slash Stern and designed such games like Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Guns N' Roses, Apollo 13, Harley Davidson, Austin Powers, and the latest games from Stern, including Indiana Jones. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. So on TopCast tonight, I'd like to welcome John Borg. John Borg, again, was a designer, did some work for uh, Data East, Sega, and Stern, including Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Last Action Hero, Tales from the Crypt, Guns N' Roses, Frankenstein, Apollo 13, Twister, Mini Viper, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Harley Davidson, Striker Extreme, Sharky's Shootout, High Roller Casino, and Austin Powers, not to mention Indiana Jones 4. He's also currently working on some other projects for Stern right now for some games to be released in the future. So we're going to get to hear from John Borg tonight on TopCast, and we're going to give him a call right now on the phone. John, can you hear me? Yes, uh-huh. Okay, how you doing tonight? Pretty good, not too bad. Well, let's let's go back way in time. I mean, were you when you were a kid, I mean, did you play pinball or I mean, you know, how what what steered you down this pinball path? Um, well, actually, as far as uh being in the pinball business, that was just by luck. Um, I did play pinball quite a bit before I was in the industry. Um, I uh, was hooked on an old Stern game, uh, Flight 2000, which yeah. was uh, which was quite a while ago, and I'm not even exactly sure of the manufacture date of that game. Yeah, it's like 1980. It's a great game. And, uh, I, I was I was hooked on it, um, and then I saw a lot of pinball in the very early 80s. Um, you know, when I was a, a teenager in high school, you know, going to the arcades to play things like you know Pac-Man and Space Invaders and uh, and that was where when I started to play probably a lot of pinball. Um, I saw a lot of old premier games uh, like Genesis and uh, a lot of early Williams games like Funhouse and Big House and uh, Big Guns and uh, Cyclone and and a lot of games like that from the uh, you know from like the early to mid eighties. Um, then um, in eighty seven I was. Uh, I was in college, and I was looking for a job as a draftsman, and I followed an ad that was um, that was in the Chicago Tribune where a company was looking for a mechanical engineer, and the ad was very, very brief, and I went to uh, to Bensonville, Illinois, and I walked into the lobby of this, this business, and there were pinball back glasses all over the walls in their front lobby. And I discovered that I was at Premier Technology, and I ended up uh, taking the job there 
when I was offered another job that actually offered more money in the hydraulics business. And I just figured that uh, pinball would be a lot more fun to work on than a hydraulic cylinder. <laughs> so I'm sure anybody can, uh, anybody probably would have made that choice. So you mean the whole thing was just basically luck the way you got into the, the way you got into it? Absolutely. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Good, good luck or bad luck? Who knows, right? <laughs> uh, well, actually, good luck. It's it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. So now, what did, what was your first job at Gottlieb? Um, I was a draftsman at Gottlieb, and uh, let's see, uh, Ray Tanzer's game Arena had just gone offline, and we were bringing up a game on the line that John Trudeau had designed called Victory. And I think the first game that I actually got to really sink my teeth into was John Norris's Diamond Lady, which was a really interesting game, and John was, was coming up with some pretty interesting new innovative game rules at the time and uh and i took a real big interest in it at that point and what this is 1987 1987 okay yeah system 80b yeah Uh uh-huh and so now what what involvement did you have in norris's game um i was laying out ramps uh roll under gates uh making assembly drawings working on the bill of materials uh doing a little bit of building of the game and assemblies for the game. Now, did you have any um, uh, any college that, that, that gave you this experience or, you know, this, you know, this education? Actually, I was going to college for uh, manufacturing, engineering, drafting, and plastics engineering. And I originally wanted to design injection molds for injection molded piece parts. And uh, when I ended up in pinball, I got to use all of that, actually. Well, like when you make a plastic ramp for pinball, when you're doing this, you know, like on a, you know, on a pre-production game, how do you actually go through and make the ramps? Um, well, you know, the designer at that time would, you know, generally lay out the path and say, I want to take the ball from point A to point B and maybe even produce a rough sketch. And then the mechanical engineer would turn around and take that drawing and make a, a nice top view. Uh, and this, at this time, you know, we were still drawing on a, on a drafting board. Um, so I would take that, you know, that sketch. I would do a really nice clean top view and actually dimension the whole thing so we knew, uh, what the elevations of the ramp were. And then I would develop like a three view or a two view drawing of that, you know, a top and a side view so that a mold maker could uh, start a tool on it, and then we would actually go out and make a rough wood prototype uh, tool for it, uh, mold a part, bring it in, and then you know tweak it, change it, you know move it, eliminate it altogether, and you know start from scratch or you know you know go into production. Yeah, I I, I kind of envisioned the way you made ramps is that you know you got took a big flat sheet of PET G and kind of cut out the bottom of the ramp make the walls ourselves yeah um yeah we, we we've done that too you know even before sometimes we would do that before going into tooling um you know sometimes we'd make the ramps out of metal and then uh you know and then go into a vacuum form from there hmm. but uh, i've seen ramps made numerous ways right right so that's what was basically the type of thing that the type of work that you were doing yes and now, how did you break into actual game design? Um, actually, I worked at Gottlieb for three years. Um, I patented a, 
uh, a device on one of John Norris's games. Uh, it was called Lights, Camera, Action, and it was uh, a section of the play field that actually flipped over and revealed a different side and took the ball to a different area. And uh, probably a couple years after that, it was probably about 1990 when Data East was running Simpsons. Um, I went over to talk to Joe Kamenko, and I was hired there as a mechanical engineer. And in a couple years following that, uh, he promoted me to game design. Now, why did you leave Gottlieb? Um, well, I was, uh, you know, I really li- I was interested in Williams, and I saw some of the Data East games that were coming up. And, uh, you know, I wanted to work at Williams. Um, I actually applied at Williams, and I actually, uh, you know, applied at Data East. And uh, Williams never called me, never did talk to them, but I did get to talk to Joe, and uh, I just decided to make the move to Data East. Hmm. Now, at, at the time, I mean, you were, you, it sounds like you liked the Williams games better than the Gottlieb games? Yes. Okay. And now, did you play the Data East games? How did you feel about those? Um, I liked them. Um, actually, I liked all of them. Laser War was really interesting. Um, Secret Service, I liked that game. Um, I even liked Torpedo Alley, which a lot of people thought was you know, not one of their stronger games. And then uh, I can't remember what came after that. Uh, Time Machine was unbelievable. Yeah, great game. So, you know, to this day, one of my, one of my favorite games. Now, when Williams came out with that Bride of Pinbot with the face that rotated, was that kind of reminiscent of what you did for Lights, Camera, Action? The face on... Um, on Bride of Pinbot. Bride of Pinbot, yes. And actually, uh, Gil Pollack, who was the, the president of Gottlieb at the time, actually, um, you know, when we saw it, we knew that the, the patent was infringed upon, and Pollack was able to use... Williams uh, replay booster automatic percentaging, um, which was a Williams patent at the time. Uh, that was their trade-off. Oh, you mean they actually like traded? Okay, you can use that, and if I can use this, you've infringed on our patent. We want this, so you're going to let us have it, or you're going to pay us money. <laughs> so that's <laughs> pretty much what it came down to. And were they pretty open to that? Uh, yes, I believe so. Um, I don't know all the legalities. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, I was just drawing lines and circles and, and involved in, you know, pinball at the time, so I didn't get into, uh, I didn't get too involved in that, but that was the, that was the result of it. Now, how was, like, the company philosophy at Gottlieb compared to Data East when you went over? I mean, was there a big, like, social, you know, change in, in, in you know, in, in thinking on how games were designed? Yeah, Gottlieb was a little more conservative. Um, you know, they had their ideas of what a good game was, and I think, uh, you know, Kamenko and the guys, they were a little more loose and a little more daring, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, I could see that. I could see the daring. Uh-huh, sure. Okay. And now, was there anything at Gottlieb that you really didn't like? I mean, that was really like, oh, you know, like dread it? The flippers. <laughs> um, you know, Williams and Data East pretty much had the you know the same type of a flipper unit, and uh, you know Gottlieb had those old bats when I first started there, um, and they're uh, 
their their flipper units were I think at the time they were running on 24 volts instead of 50. You know, they were never as strong. We could never put as tall of a ramp on a game. And then I actually designed the the newer Gottlieb flipper unit and bat that had the word Gottlieb printed across it, and it had a screw in the middle that actually held it to the shaft. It wasn't molded to a shaft. Wait, wait. So you did not like what I call the fat boy flippers, and you were the one that designed the skinny boy flippers. Yes. (laughs) And I remember... um, Oh, I can't remember his name. He was a designer from Valley. Uh, he's recently passed away. Uh, his name escapes me at the moment, but I remember he teased me about that, that newer, skinnier bat that I designed for Gottlieb. He called him. He says, why'd you put the name of the company on him? He goes, you know, and that was what I was told to do, but um, he called him the, he didn't call them flippers. He called them the Gottliebs. Huh. Now, what, uh, what was the advantage to these new skinny boy flippers? Um, they were styled a little closer to what the Data East and Williams flipper was. Uh, they eventually went to 50 volts with the, you know, with the system. Right. Um, they wanted to make them look a little more like a Data East slash Williams flipper, but they didn't want to copy them. Right. So you mean it was mostly an aesthetic change? Yes. Uh huh. But the mechanics changed too, right? Yeah, the mechanics changed too. And you'd redesign the mechanics too? Yes. Okay, now what type of, I mean, because those Gottlieb flippers, they do have a, a, a different feel than the Williams and the Data East ones. I mean, was that on purpose? Uh, no, that's just the way it came out. And, uh, you know, Gottlieb approved the unit, and they liked it, you know, better than the old one and just decided to go into production with it, and they were, they were happy with it at that point. Hmm. Okay, so now you're over at Data East, and you're basically doing the similar type of work there? Yes, um, same thing, uh, mechanical engineer slash draftsman. When I first started to work there, um, Joe Cam- I worked in Joe Camico's office with him because they didn't have any room for me at the time. We were in a pretty small facility. So I sat in Joe Camico's office and worked with him. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, the first thing that I worked on with, uh, with Joe, he was going to license a game uh, a theme called Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, which later became Jurassic Park. So what I did was I was designing a, he just kind of let me run free. He wanted me to design a, a, a dinosaur that, uh, that ate a pinball. So I designed a dinosaur that moved back and forth and I put a magnet in it, in the back of its mouth. I actually used a Godzilla model that was probably about a foot tall at the time. Uh, cut it down, and I made a little assembly. I actually still have it. Um, I put a magnet in the back of its mouth so it could pick a ball up in its mouth. Uh, it rotated back and forth, and it bent over, picked up a ball with a magnet, and then it moved over and deposited it into a different area. And then another feature was I made the arms throw pinballs, which later came um, came out on the Frankenstein pinball. Hmm. So it was like a feature that was... Uh, from the Jurassic Park dinosaur originally, and I used it in a later game. Now, did Joe know at the time that he was getting Jurassic Park, or is that it just how it worked out? He didn't. Um, he didn't, but uh, probably maybe about a year after I started there, he had been talking to Spielberg, and he took the hook license to get the Jurassic Park license. Oh, you mean he didn't really want hook? 
Uh, no, not necessarily. Hmm. I I never really liked that game much. <laughs> he, he he took Hook to get uh, to yeah. get to uh, Jurassic Park, and Hook actually turned out to be a really good game. I, I don't. I never really liked it. You know. No. Uh huh. The Hook 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 thing irritates me. Uh huh. You know, it's mostly the voice calls more than than any other than you know than the gameplay or anything else. But the the voice just gets to me after a little while. Yeah, we didn't get license or we didn't get uh, uh, likenesses of Robin Williams. Um, you know, so it was kind of a you know a generic Peter Pan game, if you will. But you know, it had a you know a nice big squirrely ramp with the chaser lights on it, and then had the ramp on the right side with the clock, the crack clock, and um, I was actually kind of surprised it turned out as well as it did and sold as well as it did. Were you responsible for the chaser lights? No, uh, Tim Seckel. That was that was his baby. Yeah, because they used that in the Star Trek Next Generation, or not Next Generation, Star Trek Twenty uh, Fifth. Star Trek, uh huh. Right, right, right. Yes. Hmm. Now, why couldn't they get Robin Williams to do voiceovers for that? Um, I don't know. They didn't get his li- his likeness either. Um, I do not remember the story, the exact story behind that. Hmm. Um, and the name of the the girl, which I should know, but that escapes me too. She was Tinkerbell and Hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julia Roberts. Right. They didn't have her likeness either. Right. Right. So, so Paul pretty much painted a, a generic uh, looking, you know, Peter Panish backlash. Right. Right. So now, what was of these games that you did the mechanical, you know, engineering and the drawing, you know, the designs and the drawings on? What's the one that you're most proud of? Um, I would have to say uh, Star Wars. Um, but you're the game designer for Star Wars too, aren't you? Yes. Yes. Uh huh. No, I... uh, that was probably my favorite game. Um, you know, back in the day. Well, you know, I got to say this that. As far as game designers go, you have to be either the nicest guy in the world or the luckiest guy in the world. Because, man, did, did you get all the good ones? I mean, you got Star Wars, you got Jurassic Park, you got Tales from the Crypt, you got Guns N' Roses, you got Apollo 13. I mean, I, I mean you got Harley Davidson and Austin Powers, and now you have your your latest game. Um, I, I mean, you're, you're like, I, I, you got to have, like, Pat Lawler hitting his head against the the desk. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Um, yeah, I, I really kind of lucked out um, getting the the indie license, and it's kind of ironic because my first game, which was Star Wars, you know, was a you know a Harrison Ford. Uh, uh, you know, Harrison Ford was in Star Wars. Harrison yep. Ford's in Indiana Jones. Um, so, and then this is my first game in seven years. So you know, it's kind of ironic that I start out again with a you know with a Harrison Ford uh, quote unquote license. So uh, pretty interesting. I'm really really happy about it. I was really glad to get the title. Well, now how did you get Star Wars? I mean, how did you get that? That I mean, that is very interesting. Um, when I started on my first game, which was Star Wars, it was actually Jurassic Park. And in the place of where the Death Star is in the game was where I had my ball-eating and, and ball-tossing dinosaur. So I had that laid out in the game, um, and I had a ramp laid out, 
and uh, some ball scoops and up kickers and whatnot. And then I would think I had worked on it for probably three, three, four months. And then Joe told me that I was going to trade off and the Jurassic Park license wasn't going to happen and I was going to do Star Wars instead. So I turned my Jurassic Park layout into Star Wars. Now, did you design... On the opposite side of the playfield, and that's where I decided to put the R2-D2 model. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Did you did you design it, or, or that bobbing, turning R2-D2? Yeah, originally it tilted back and forth. Hmm. There were two coils that pulled the left side down and the right side down. Okay. And we ended up cross-cutting it and just pulled it down from the center. Now, how... how pre- the display effect of R2-D2 moving, you know, he tilted left and right. Mm-hmm, right. And we ended up not changing that for production, and we ended up changing the unit to just, to just operate off of one coil. Right. So that it would just, you know, bounce up and down from the center point. Now, how much cost-cutting was there in, like, say, Gottlieb compared to Data East when you when you designed something? Um, the Gottlieb games, they seem to, uh, they seem to, you know, design, uh, you know, around their bill of material. Um, and they seem to always, you know, pretty much, uh, hit. We didn't do a whole lot of cost cutting at Gottlieb. They were, they were pretty much designed and built and, uh, a few things taken out here and there, but, uh, not quite as drastic as uh, Data East. Um, you know, Data East, we used to just go crazy and then we'd find out what the game cost and if it was just way over budget, we had to, you know, we were always scrambling at the last minute to try to, you know, pull money out or do something here or there to, you know, get the game to our cost. Well, when you say pull money out... The, the bill of material was a little smaller at Gali than it was at Data East. Well, when you say pull money out, I, I mean, typically, like, if you were over budget on something, are we talking like five, ten dollars or are we talking like $50? Oh, probably more like $50. <laughs> so you really did shoot high then. 13 is a good example. Um, I designed a unit... When you look at the middle of the Apollo 13 playfield, there is a uh, a picture of the moon and the earth. Right. And those were counter-rotating uh, spinning platters. So we ended up yanking that out of Apollo 13 to get the game at cost. So there were actually, uh, and I have one of them, there were actually five or six playfields where we had those openings cut out there. We had those counter-rotating units in place. And we cost-cut that at the last minute before production. We sent those original five or six boards back, had the holes plugged up, and then had them rescreened. Huh. So, and, and did you end up using them? Put the play field up, and you look at the bottom, you can see where they patched in the, the earth and the moon. Hmm. Fill it in with wood. Now, that was like a, a la fireball or whirlwind type thing, right? Yes, uh-huh. Right. And did that how did that affect the gameplay? Um, not too much really. Not too much. Um you know, the ball with the with the counter rotating moon, the moon was rather small. Um, so you got a lot of ball spin off of the earth which was larger, but the moon really didn't do much because it was such a small diameter. Right. Um but really not too much. Hmm. Okay, so now you after Star Wars you ended up... Oh, oh, by the way, did you meet any of the, the cast or characters of Star Wars? Um, I got to meet George Lucas. 
I passed up on going to my my ten year reunion uh, for high school to uh, go out to Skywalker Ranch and tour the ranch and meet George Lucas. So that was a pretty that was a pretty easy trade off. So why did you go out even after meet anybody? Uh, we went out to present the game to him. Hmm. So we uh, we had the opportunity. I think it was Lonnie. Uh, Neil Falconer, uh, who programmed Star Wars, Joe, myself, and a couple other people, uh, Marcus, uh, Rothkrantz, the artist, we all got to go out there and we got to actually present the game to George Lucas. And what was his reaction? Oh, he really liked it. And he's, uh, he was pretty nonchalant about it. He walked in, we talked with him for a little while, you know, we demonstrated the game, and he walked off, and I thought, well, you know, he wasn't jumping up and down or anything, but when after he left, his people told us that that was an, a great reaction from George, that he was very pleased. So, <laughs> so, but I'm sure George Lucas has a, you know, every day he probably has, uh, you know, quite a few things to look at. And, um, but, you know, the Star Wars package was so good, you know, there wasn't much to not like about it. You know, the display effects were great, but, you know, the play field played nice, um, and it was a good-looking game. Yeah, it sold really well. It sold over 10,000 units. Pinball with us. Pardon me? That was Marcus Rothkrantz's uh, first art package with uh, Data East. Oh, okay. And he did quite a few with us after that. Now, after that, you did get Jurassic Park. How did that come about? Um, yeah, we did eventually get Jurassic Park, um, and uh, Ed Sabula. Uh, Ed Sabula did the, you know, the, the main portion of the layout on that game, and then uh, Joe Balser and myself uh, helped him with mechanics on it. Hmm. Now your dinosaur morphed. You didn't, weren't using the magnet or the throwing arms. How, tell me about that. Right. Yeah, that would the unit then at that time. Um, we were a little bit behind the gun at the time, and uh, we were working with a company called Partech, and they did most of the design for the dinosaur unit. Hmm. That came out pretty good, though. Out of our mechanical assemblies at the time. Right. And uh, and they actually did the mechanics for the dinosaur unit itself, with uh, you know with Ed Sabula. But that dinosaur came out really well. Yeah, it did. And you know, the only problem that we had with it early on was. Uh, the center switch that aligned it with the hole that it picked the ball up out of. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the the unit would uh, would tear off the actuator, and there was a simple solution to that. And uh, I wish we would have uh, discovered it a little sooner. Hmm. Now, what was the next game that you really got full? People still talk about it a lot to this day. Yeah, great, great game. Similar to it, you know, in the future. Yeah, I mean, the the whole Jurassic Park, I mean, you really nailed that theme great. Oh, yeah, and the, the multi-ball was great, and the chaos mode was great. Uh, had a nice cast gun on the machine, and the, the smart missile was, that was a uh, uh, Joe Camico idea. The smart missile would help you knock out one of the chaos letters while you were trying to get to your super jackpot, and, and uh, it was an all-around great game. Yeah, I agree. Really nice package. So what was the next game that you got, you know, full control over? Let's see. Um, Last Action? 
Star Wars Tales from the Crypt. But what did you do on Last Action Hero? Um, I designed the crane unit. Uh, and that was about it on that game. So you were still doing a lot of mechanics, even though in not necessarily a lot of game design. Everybody with their games in between my games. Gotcha. So, you know, I, the, I did all, all the mechanics with Timmy, uh, Tim Seckle on Hook. Um, I worked on Batman, and I worked on Star Trek, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, uh, Batman Forever, uh, quite a few of them. So I got my hand, when I wasn't working on my own game, I was helping somebody else with a, a ramp or a mechanical device or something on their game. So I was, I was very busy. Right. Now, what did, tell me about Tales from the Crypt. Um, Tales from the Crypt, uh, let's see. Started out um, uh, with the 180 ramp on the right side. It was actually a lot longer. Uh, didn't have such a small opening. We ended up adding another shot to start multi-ball next to it, which shrunk it up a little bit. And I just actually read something recently on the Internet. Some guy had come in, and I shot the uh, the 180 vertical ramp ten times in a row without it dropping into the little, uh, what do they call it? The, they called it the cow catcher or something like that. If the, if the ball went around the 180 ramp and didn't quite make it, it would drop down and feed into the other wire ramp right. and return it to the right flipper. But I got 10 shots in a row, and the 180 ramp brought the ball to the right flipper, and then I would pass it over to the left flipper and then shoot the right ramp, the 180 ramp again. And I got 10 shots in a row, and somebody had sent me this email that somebody had written. It was quite a few years ago. They were uh, digging on the Internet, and they found this, this article, and they sent it to me, and I actually remembered it. So, And that was uh, 1993, 1994, I think, when... When Crypt came out. Right. Uh, John Kassir, uh ad-libbed a lot of the speech for the game. You know, the no pay him, no game, and uh, the hack pot. And he, uh, you know, he took our speech list and he took it to new heights. So that was a lot of fun. And then I remember uh, the door handle on the game, which was how you shot the ball into play. Right. I uh, just had this idea. I wanted to, I wanted to do a a mystery door feature where you would uh, see three doors come into this play and you'd, you'd pick a door with your flipper and then you would actually activate it and open a door with a door handle and that ended up being the shooter for the game. Instead of a plunger or a fire button, it was a door handle. And then we molded the Crypt Keeper's head to go over it. <laughs> so the, uh, the lever where you push the door handle down was actually his tongue started mocking it up, Cameco goes, you are out of your mind. What is the cost on that to get stuff like that done? Um, you know, the door handle was actually purchased from a company called Quickset, which if you look at your own door handle on your own house, uh, it's a 50% chance it's a Quickset. Right. So that was actually purchased item. Uh, I think the first one we got from a, you know, a Menards or a Home Depot, and then we just molded the... Uh, the head for it. We casted the first bunch, and then we did an injection mold for it for production. So for production, you it isn't actually a quick set, is it? Yes. Really? Yep. If your door handle broke, you could go to a hardware store and you could replace it with another one. 
Isn't that something? Yeah. <laughs> now, how often does that happen in game design? That game, we were bringing in door handles from Quick Set, and we were throwing out the knob that went on the opposite side. And I'm sure our dumpster at the end of the day was full of them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an actual, you know, genuine Quick Set door handle. You know, we didn't manufacture it. We didn't make it. Uh, they did it for us. How often do things like that happen? Uh, once in a blue moon. Not very often. Generally, you know, if we do a custom part like that, it's, you know, uh, you know, like a gun, for instance. You know, uh, we worked with HAP controls uh, on a lot of those assemblies, and they were casted, and some of them were, uh, you know, made in China, uh, the, uh, the die castings. Um, so, you know, generally it was a, you know, if it was a custom part we went through, we worked with HAP, uh, to produce it. But generally, um, you know, we didn't buy many parts from Quickset. <laughs> well, how many, like, how, yeah, how many, how many parts would actually come from, like, you know, you know, little toy trinkets and stuff like that? Uh, back then, hardly any. We didn't really put, uh, um, you know, like, you know, in today's world, we're, um, you know, we're purchasing a lot of toys from companies. Um, and then in the, probably the mid-90s, I think it was like after Twister, uh, we met Dave Link from Evolution Studios, and he's here in the Chicago area, and he did some really nice sculpting work for us, and, and actually still does. And he actually did the... Uh, the sculpture for the uh, Ark of the Covenant that's on the indie game today. So we still work with Dave. But uh, uh, we met Dave and, you know, we saw some of his work and, you know, we had to have him work with us. So, like, the RT... We would have met him before we did Twister because we did that big canister on the Twister game that held the balls, uh, that locked the balls for multiball. Mm -hmm. And it was just a really rough casted thing with some decals on it. And if we would have had Dave do that part, it would have looked a lot more realistic. Now, what about the RT-D2? Was that custom made for you guys? That was injection molded. Um, and we just put a decal on it uh, to make it look like R2-D2. Hmm. Uh, the original one that I did for that, uh, Kurt Anderson, which was one of the artists, he made the, uh, he just gave me a flat of what R2-D2 looked like, uh, you know, from the, from the head down, and I just took a piece of butyrate and added some holes and heated it up with a heat gun into a half circle, and uh, that's where that came from. And then we decided that we were we were doing pretty good numbers back then, so we uh, we made up an injection molded part for the body itself and the head. And the head was a two-piece mold. Uh, the blue insert on the inside was one. And then the the chrome outer piece was a was a separate tool. Huh? Is that stuff pretty expensive? Yes. So you got to have the numbers in production to do that. States. Pardon me. Especially if you do it in the states, it's it's more expensive. Right. But a lot of our injection molded pieces are are coming out of China uh, today, and they're a little more economical. So that's you know that's better for us right now because the more we can put in the game, the merrier. Right. Now, what was your involvement with Guns N' Roses? Um, Slash actually contacted us for the Guns N' Roses license. Um, 
Slash was really into pinball. He has probably about 20, 25 games throughout his house. And he actually contacted us about the license for, for guns. Um, while we were working on the game, he came out to uh, Data East and spent a couple of evenings with us. And, you know, we were sketching things together and talking and, you know, trying to get a feel for, you know, what he wanted to see on the game. Um, I remember the second time uh, Joe and I went out to his house in L.A. and we got to see his house and and his pinball machine collection. And uh, then there's an interesting story there, too. It was right after the earthquake in 93 in L.A. And Joe and I were at his house and uh, Slash had a pet cougar named Curtis that was about maybe about six, seven months old, about the size of a German shepherd. And he was just walking around the house like a house cat. And he walked, you know, alongside of me and brushed up against me like a house cat. And so I started to pet him. And so I squatted down next to him and I was petting him. He laid down on his side and rolled over on his back like a dog. So I started to pet his stomach. Don't ever pet a cougar on his stomach. <laughs> Before I knew it, his paw came up around the back of my neck. And that cat flipped me upside down and was on top of me with his jaws on my neck within seconds. <laughs> and I just, I just froze. I didn't try to fight it or pull away or push him off or anything. I just laid there because I knew that if I did anything, I probably would have been over. <laughs> so, so if you ever get a chance to pet a cougar, don't, don't pet him on the belly. Okay, so Slash has a pet cougar and is the thing full grown now? Uh, I don't think he has it anymore. I'm, I would be pretty certain that he probably had given it to a zoo or or something like that. Because I'm sure that as he got to be about a year old, you know, you know, instincts take over, and and I'm sure that by that time he had gotten pretty big. <laughs> so uh, my best guess would be that he probably doesn't have them anymore. And what was Joe Camico's reaction and Slash's reaction when the cougar did this to you? Uh, I think I think Joe um, just about had a heart attack, and Slash just yelled at Curtis and said, "Get off!" Like like he was a dog or something, and he did. He just told him, "He goes, get off, Curtis." <laughs> and then that was the end of it. I got up and I caught my breath, and I was like, "Okay, that just happened," you know. <laughs> so so that'll uh, that'll be something that I will never forget for the rest of my life. That was that was an interesting. Uh, that was an interesting ordeal. <laughs> did did he kind of say after the fact, uh, hey, yeah, that's a bad idea, uh, don't pet their stomach? Uh, no, he really didn't say anything after that. I just, you know, and, you know, even if he did, I probably wouldn't have remembered it because I was kind of, uh, you know, kind of in a little bit of a shock at the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, definitely a, a memorable experience, and I'll never, never pet a cougar on this belly again. Yeah, I would think maybe you should never pet a cougar again. Stay away from those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now, what involvement did you have with on the Guns N' Roses design? I'm, I'm sorry? What involvement did you have in Guns N' Roses? Oh, uh, pretty much everything. Um, you know, I laid out the, uh, you know, the G and the R ramps and, and the whole play field. Um, uh, you know, Slash you know, roughed out a little sketch of, you know, different things that he wanted on the game. And one of them, which ended up in the game, was uh, he wanted a snake pit. And then uh, 
Guns N' Roses, actually, the first layout was a narrow game, you know, a standard play field. Right. And we ended up turning it into a wide body. And when I did that, I instead of stretching out the whole game, I just added the... Uh, the, the snake pit ramp, the green ramp to the left side with the little bowl up at the top, and then I added the, the rose plunger to the left side of the cabinet. So I actually lucked out. There were a couple of games that one of them went from a from a wide to a narrow, and then mine was one of the games that went from a narrow starting out uh, on paper to a to a wide body game. So uh, I lucked out. I just added the the extra lane to the one side and the, the little ball ramp and made it feed into the orbit shot. Now, what was the thinking behind going... The ramp. What was the thinking to go from a narrow to a wide-body game? Um, uh, at the time, uh, Williams had come out with, I think it was Twilight Zone? Right. I believe. Um, and uh, so we wanted to try a wide-body game as well. So I guess, you know, more or less you could say we, were, we followed the, our competition... Um, you know, Zenith makes a, you know, a 36 inch tube or a, you know, 50 inch widescreen, you know, then, uh, you know, Sony's got to go that way or, you know, or whatnot. So we were just kind of, I guess we were following our competition. Hmm. So, and, uh, you know, so I was in the middle of the layout with Guns N' Roses and they said, we're going to make a wide body game out of it. And I was like, all right, you know, the more room, the merrier, you know, as far as I'm concerned. So. How much did a wide body cost for bill of materials compared to a standard? Um, our bomb really didn't increase. We just had to kind of spread out our money a little better. You know, the cabinet was probably just a little bit more expensive. Uh, the back box was the same, you know, the same size as a, as a standard. Um, and then I guess, you know, we more or less had to, you know, spread the parts over a larger area. But our, I don't think our cost was any different. I think it stayed the same. Hmm. Now, on the shooter lane ramp, what was the reasoning for not putting a switch at the very top end of that ramp? You know, sometimes where you get that problem where you get multi-balls stacking up and they can't get the balls all the way up the ramp? Yes, we actually made a different ramp that delivered the ball and it into the top lanes, just went up and over and fed it into the orbit lane. Um because we had ball problems getting balls out of that ramp. Um, originally, there was a lock ball unit all the way up into the area where the ball fed into the top lanes, and I was actually locking six balls up there. Uh, the up kicker that was over on the right, it was another shot where you got you collected your band members. Mm-hmm. Um, that area was going to be... Um, you were going to make that same shot to collect your band members, but the ball was shooting up and feeding into the other wire ramp, and they were actually locking up there in a mechanism. But we ended up pulling that out at the end. Uh, that was a cost cut. Right, right. So that unit ended up coming out. Why would they just put a switch at the top of that lane, though, so it didn't have, like, two balls in the shooter lane trying to get them up? Um, that would have been a good idea. Uh, but it was like Guns N' Roses. I think I did Guns N' Roses in four months. Where, you know, generally a, you know, a designer would have six, eight months, a year to do a game. Guns N' Roses came up and 
and was in production pretty quick. Hmm. So, uh, but yes, a second switch in the shooter lane would have been a great idea. Right. Or maybe even a software change where if a ball got into the shooter lane and kicked up the ramp and didn't make it, you'd wait a little while and initialize multi-ball a little slower, but um, if you got a ball on the ramp and it didn't make it, you know, don't send a second ball into the shooter lane. Right. You know, or a third or a fourth. Right. Yeah. So that would have been, you know, it could have been controlled with software too. Yeah, because they stack up in there and then the game's hopelessly. Yeah. Yep, and that's a really strong coil kicking those balls through that ramp. What would have been even better is if that wire ramp was a vacuum form ramp so there wasn't so much drag. Right. You know, on the ball itself. And we were kicking that ball up pretty high, you know, all the way to the back of the game. So, so that was kind of risky. Now, why did you go with a wire form versus a vacuum form? Um, you know what? I can't even, I can't even answer that question. I don't know. But it started out as a wire and, uh, you know, by the time, you know, we had, you know, we noticed we had a problem with it and we were, we were at production. So, uh, instead of going and redesigning and making a big tool for a vacuum form ramp there, we just ended up making a shorter ramp so the ball didn't have to travel as far. Changed the plating too, right? Yeah, it was powder coated. Yeah, so you changed it to chrome to make it smoother. Powder coated in black, and then we ended up going, we, we changed it to chrome because it seemed like the ball, instead of, uh, the ball seemed to be able to skid and slide better on the chrome-plated ramp than the, than the powder-coated ramp. Right. So that actually helped, too. Cool game, though. I mean, I, I think that was, you know, a really well done. It is a good game. Um, and they're actually, their resale value is really good right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wish I would have had a little more time to... I wish I would have had a little more time to play with all my games. They all seem to... Star Wars, I had a lot of time on in the very beginning. And uh, it seemed like after that, you know, it was... You know, four months, five months, uh, Twister came up really fast too. And, uh, and I got lucky that Twister came out as well as it did. But, uh, that game came up really fast too. I think I spent four months on that game. Well, now the next one you did after this, it looks like was Frankenstein, right? Yes. Okay. So tell me about that game a little. Um, Frankenstein, uh, I got a script for Frankenstein and read it. And, uh, I was having a little bit of a problem picturing Robert De Niro as the monster, you know, as the creature. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I liked the story. I thought it was really good. And uh, I was looking for, you know, I was trying to think of a, a really good mechanism to put in the game. And it ended up being, you know, the creature itself. And then I brought back that old uh, ball-tossing uh, feature from Jurassic Park the Jurassic Park dinosaur that I originally designed when I started there. Um, and that worked out pretty well. And actually, that was another unit that had a little cost-cutting uh, because it originally, uh, I made the head rotate back and forth with a, uh, a servo motor, right. like on a remote control car. And the, the unit had a, a DC motor that actually turned the whole unit. Um, so the whole creature... You know, arms, body, head, and all would turn to the left, and then you could turn the head all the way over to the right, and he was, you know, a little bit more animated. But we ended up removing that prior to production as a cost savings, and then it was kind of like a, 
like a safety too because we were worried about registering the arms with the little shoots that fed the ball into the hands. So it was probably a, you know, a little safer a thing to do. And, uh, you know, and we had to find a little money in the game too. Right. Um, and then, you know, following that, it was, uh, the dot matrix was costing us probably about $60 a game more than the, the standard size one that we use today. Right. So, uh, you know, had we had the small dot matrix at that time, we might have had that part of the, of the mechanical unit in for the, for the creature. Now, how did you feel about the large dot matrix? I love it. The you know the display you know when you when you digitize especially now if we you know digitize a scene you know from a movie um, you just get to see so much more of it. Uh, you know, really large images will show up better. You know, you don't have to worry about. Uh, I mean, remember the really early dot matrix, the really small one was right. like half the size of the standard one. Yeah, like hook. Where we would show a face, and we would have to you know, scroll the image down so you could see exactly what you were looking at. Right. You know, you'd see, like, the, the eyes and the top of the head, and then you'd scroll it up, and you'd, you know, oh, that was a face, you know. So, uh, but I really like the large dot matrix. I, you know, I wish we could get it back, but but it's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it probably drove the pro... CD screen would be nice, and, you know, who knows, maybe in the future... You know, as they start to come down a little bit, you know, that may be the the next generation. Yeah, but then you got a lot more programming, right? A lot more programming, yes. Right, right. Which means more time, which means more money. Yep, more employees. Yeah. So, right. you never know. All right, we're going to take a little break from talking with John Borg, the game designer, and we'll be right back after this message. Deep in the forests of eastern Canada, you will find something, well... Groundbreaking, and something that's very, very pinball, but something that's really, really small. Presenting classic playfield reproductions. Two guys in their basements. We've got the passion, we've got the gear, and we've got the quality. Doing our very best to remake classic and more modern pinball replacement parts. Classic playfield reproductions. Playfields, back glasses, plastic sets. On the web at classicplayfields.com. This portion of TopCast is brought to you by Pin Game Journal, covering the world of pinball. Visit them online at www.pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with John Borg and more of his design stories. Were you pretty happy with the Frankenstein and how he turned out? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Okay. Now, the next project was Apollo 13. Now, that is a killer game. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, and I, I still have mine, and uh, and I really love that game. I actually uh, got to meet Jim Lovell, and we actually presented him. We took his game to his house, set it up in his basement, and demonstrated it for him, and he signed uh, back glasses and rockets for a few of us. Huh. So um, I did... Joe Balser handled the the main layout for the game. Um, Rob Hurtado assisted him with it, and then I did all the toys. I designed the the rocket and the the moon unit, um, and then the double spinning disc that I talked about earlier, uh, the counter rotating Earth and Moon, which ended up getting yanked out at the end. 
in the ball load for the 13-ball multi-ball that's in the, like, the upper left-hand corner, that's your design, too? No, that balls are designed now. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you why they use those membrane switches for that. Um, you know, I think it was a real estate problem. And, uh, you know, it would have been nice if we would have had Aptos up there. But we weren't really using them very much, if at all, at that point. Right. Um, I think the only place at that time we'd used an Opto was maybe in the, uh, uh, the, 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 the trough, the, the outhole trough. Yeah, the first Data East game with Optos was that, uh, that Western game, uh, with all the drop targets. I forget the name. Um, Maverick. Yeah, Maverick. Yes, uh huh. Yeah. Which was probably only a couple games before Apollo 13. Yeah, you know, the membrane switches, I, they're actually in Twister too. And, uh, you know, like on my home games, I've, uh, I've never had any problems with them, but I hear that they do wear out and eventually have to be replaced. And when you have to replace them, you know, they're, uh, they have an adhesive on the bottom. Right. And you have to, you know, it's probably quite a job to get them off. You know, you probably have to tear them off. And then you got to take mineral spirits and clean all the, you know, all the, uh, the adhesive goo. off. Yeah. And then replace them. Yeah, I had to replace them on my game. So, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, because a couple of the switches, um, a couple of the switches didn't work, and, and it kind of it confuses the game if a couple of you know you'll have you know whatever it's ball you know uh, seven through thirteen, and if ball number nine and ten don't work, the game kind of gets whacked out. Uh huh. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, I worked on somebody else's game recently that they had a similar problem. I mean, the game will still work, but it it just. It gets um, it takes longer for it to load that mechanism and understand that all the balls are there. Uh huh. Uh huh. It, it figures it out eventually because you know if if seven isn't working and and six and eight are, you know, it kind of guesstimates. Yeah. Yeah, it figures that if you know two are there and then two are missing and then the next one's there, that you know that the two switches that aren't working, there has to be a ball there. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a little little bit of an intelligence. There. So how was it to replace that? Did you have to? You know, it, you know, was it easy to tear off, or it, it was paint scraper to it, or yeah, I think I actually used a razor blade to be honest with you. <laughs> um, yeah, and you're right. You you got to get it off, and you got to get all the adhesive off, and then you got to stick the new one down and make sure you stick it in the right place. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a little stressful. It's really good for getting that glue off. Right, right. So. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it worked out in the end. But those switches are expensive now. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the replacement cost is on those, but um, I know that they, uh, you know, like if we go back and have to make them for, you know, part sales, you know, we buy them in a small quantity, they are pretty expensive. Right. right. So. Yeah. All right, so then you did uh, the Twister. What what was your involvement in Twister? Um, Twister, uh, that was another game that, had, that came up quick. Uh, I didn't have any time to change it. Um, but it came out pretty well, uh, shot pretty well, and then I received a patent on the uh, the magnetic spinning disc. Um, I wanted to do something different with a, you know, with a spinning platter, and I came up with the, you know, the idea of you know putting a magnet as a as a center core. Right. Um, but of course, you know, I remember the. Uh, the old days, the old Gottlieb days when they did Monte Carlo and they had the uh, the roulette wheel and they had the little wiper board that right. they had problems with. Yep. So I couldn't do anything like that with the magnet. Um, so I ended up keeping the magnet stationary and just running the core up through the center. So 
so the magnet didn't have to spin with the unit. Right. And uh, we actually got a patent on that. Huh. And that that unit, uh, you know, worked pretty well, and it was it was pretty pretty cool to watch, especially when you got five balls on the bladder. Hmm. Now, how long would it take to get a patent? Um, now it takes probably a year and a half, two years, before you actually receive it after you send it out. Um, I think back then it was probably about a year huh. before it was actually uh, uh, before you actually received word, you know, and uh, you know got to see how many claims, uh, you know, that you filed that were accepted. Right. Right. Now you you also had some involvement with Mini Viper, right? Yes. So what was that? What made out Mini Viper? They uh, we built the game. Uh, Orin Day programmed it. We took it to a show, and a couple of the customers says, "Why didn't you guys make it uh, a normal size game?" We were just trying to uh, make a smaller footprint for a you know a tavern owner, and uh, they you know our customers distributors. You know, we're like, how come you didn't make it a normal size game? So, uh, it, you know, it ended up, you know, it ended up, uh, you know, being canned and, uh, a couple years later, uh, Robert Tato designed a, a full size Viper game. Now, was this, how much did... One that, uh, we made is, I think, the only one that we ever built. And, uh, I don't know who, I, I'm trying to think of the name of the person who bought it. Bakula. Um... But he did a few modifications to it, and uh, uh, and still has it. It's right. going to stay in his collection, I believe. Now, what what was the did Safecracker have a big influence on this? Uh, no, actually not. No. Mm-mm. Did you guys even? Yeah, I mean, this came out of. I remember, I remember Safecracker. Uh, that was that was a pretty interesting little project. Right. Uh, that that Pat designed. Right, but it was about the same size as Mini Viper. Um, you know what? I, I actually I, I don't remember. I don't remember what the dimensions of that playfield were. I thought that was a. I know it was smaller, but I thought Mini Viper was quite a bit smaller than it. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And that was the only one that they ever made of that style, I believe. Right. The uh, the Safe Cracker game. Yep. Yep. No. Yeah, it didn't, you know, for whatever reason. No, it is really a cool game, like you said, but, yeah, they didn't take that any further. They were going to. That was going to be like a platform, but they just never progressed with it. Uh-huh. You know, but. All right, so then it looks like you did the the Lost World, you know, the second Jurassic Park game, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit about that one. I wanted to go back for a second to, uh, to Twister. Oh, um, sure. I was lucky enough to be able to go down and I got to uh, go on a couple of the Twister sets. Um, I was able to meet Bill Paxson and they uh, they when we got there they sent us to a they sent us to um, uh, a cafeteria that was I, they had purchased a uh, a school or they were renting an old abandoned school or something like that. And uh, they said, go to this building, and, you know, Bill will meet you there at such and such a time. And Bill came walking into the cafeteria while Joe and I and Brian uh, Schmidt were there singing Pinball Wizard. And then he grabbed us and took us out, and we were walking around on a couple of the sets, and we went over to Helen Hunt's trailer. And Bill walked up to the trailer, and he pounded on the door. And she goes, who is it? And he goes, it's me, Bill. He goes, 
the pinball guys are here. And she opened up the door, and she was in curlers getting ready for a set, <laughs> getting ready for a take. So uh, that was pretty pretty exciting. So <laughs> I was able to you know I was able to meet Bill and uh, and Helen. Were they were they pretty uh, pretty friendly? Oh, very. Yeah, both of them were. And were they into the pinball thing? Just your average run of the mill, you know, happy go lucky guy. He was he was really nice. And were they into the pinball? We got to chat with Helen. You would think that you know Helen being incredible, she wouldn't want to sit and talk for a very long time. But uh, you know, we got to talk to her for a few minutes anyway. Right. So, but right. yeah, they were both really nice people. And they liked the pinball concept. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, I I was going to ask if you met Helen. She was would be the one I'd want to meet compared to Bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah she was great. Yeah. So, um, let's see. Uh, where are we going next year? Oh, oh, the Lost World. Oh, Lost World. Yes. Yep. So now, how did you feel about doing the second Jurassic Park game? Um, I was pretty excited about it. Um, I wasn't as excited about the movie after I saw it. Um, but uh, you know, I was glad to. You know, I was glad to get the title, you know, and go back and, you know, work with uh, work with dinosaurs again. Right. So, and then um, the uh, the mechanical feature, the little truck that unfolded and picked up the ball and dumped it in the back. Right. That was uh, that was built up a little bit more in the script than was in the movie. I guess they had problems filming that, or you know, the special effects weren't really there yet. And, um. So it ended up not being as big a part of the movie as it was, you know, in the early script that I had read. You know, otherwise I probably would have had a different mechanical unit there. Huh. And uh, we wanted to do something a little different than the original Jurassic Park, so, you know, hence there was no giant ball-eating dinosaur. Right. Um, wasn't one of my favorite games. Now, when they when you get a movie like this... Do you get to see, like, an early version of it, or do you just get a script? Uh, sometimes I get a script. Um, you know, sometimes I might go out and meet with licensing and, you know, be read, like, a, uh, a synopsis of the, you know, of the story. You know, uh, maybe even sometimes with, like, a slide presentation, you know, with a few clips of, you know, uh, you know, a few clips of the movie. You know, sets, actors on the sets and whatnot. Um, but generally, you know, like back in the day, it was generally a script. Hmm. And was it pretty hard to visualize? Imagination from there. Yeah, so was it hard to visualize this stuff from the script? Um, not too much. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. It was, it was pretty well spelled out in the script, hmm. you know, as to what was going on in the movie and the, in the film. So your, your guesstimation of what things, how things were going to turn out were pretty accurate then? Um, yeah, you know, everything except for the, uh, the snagger or the, you know, the, the truck that, uh, the, the way they described it in the, the early script that I read when I started to lay out the game was, you know, this truck was chasing through the, you know, through the weeds after this dinosaur and this great big thing came out in front and, and shocked the dinosaur and then they picked it up with this clamp and they, you know, lifted it up and put it in the back of the truck. It was like a, a three, four second flash in the movie, you know, when we actually saw the film. Right. And I was pretty, pretty, uh, I was pretty upset about it. But, you know, at that point we were finished with the game and we were building samples already, so it wasn't like we could go back and change it. But, oh. uh, but it was a neat little mechanism, you know, it was definitely different. 
Yeah. So, and, uh, uh, Rob Hurtado ended up laying out that little egg in the middle that was above the ball scoop. Right. That uh, opened and closed and there was a little dinosaur inside of it. Yep. 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 So, but that wasn't one of my most favorite games of all time. Right. Like a couple year break and then it didn't really do any design until Harley Davidson. Is that right? Let's see. Um, let's see. And I have to refresh my memory here. There was Lost World. Um, off the top of your head, can you think of the, the, the Sega slash Data East game that came after Lost World? No, to be honest with you, after Lost World. Why did, did you, um, here, hold on a second. Mm hmm. I will try and find out. No, the Lost in Space was in there somewhere. That was a that was another one that was uh, uh, sounded like you know when when we got the 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 script and the the license for that 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 would have been really a great movie, which really wasn't. How much work did you do on that one? Uh, quite a bit, um, and then I think we just all kind of. Gave up on it when the when the movie came out. When we, after we saw it, I think everybody was just kind of frowning when they walked out of the movie theater after that. X Files, Starship Troopers, Viper, Lost in Space, Golden Q, Godzilla, South Park, then Harley. Yes. 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 Um, let's see. I did a lot of work with Norris on uh, uh, Golden Q. Um, which ended up in my lap later. They didn't make Golden Q, um, but one day they came into my office and they handed me a ramp, uh, the target bank, and all the wire ramps, and that was where Sharky Shootout came out of. You know, they handed me all these parts. I guess they had purchased parts for 500 Golden Qs and never made them, but they wanted to use the parts so they handed me the ramps, all the wire ramps, the uh, the little eight ball assembly, um, which eventually, which originally just had a little paddle in it that diverted the ball back and forth to the left or the right wire ramp. And then I ended up revising that and making it uh, like a magic eight ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so Golden Q parts ended up becoming a game uh, that was later Sharky Shootout. And uh, Dwight Sullivan uh, did the game rules for that game and uh, worked with John Yossi on the art. Hmm. hmm. And were, were you, pre- I mean, did you have to do much morphing to turn John's design into yours? Uh, not too much. Um, I just took out the, uh, the coil assembly that diverted the ball back and forth. Um, I added a motor with a little... Uh, a flag and a and a small opto board and and put all the you know put the motor assembly and everything underneath that platform and tried to hide it as good as possible and uh, then I made I did another vacuum form that fit inside of the original eight ball um, that we attached decals to and we put a small clear area on the the eight ball that John had designed. So you could see through to make it. We tried to make it look as much like a right, like a magic eight ball as we could. Right, huh? Interesting. And then John Yossi did a really nice art package on that game. 
did you do much on the Harley Davidson game? Everything. Oh, that that was your entire design. Yes. Uh huh. And because that's actually kind of a pretty cool game. Yeah, I like Harley. Um, not a not a ton of shots on it, but the the motorcycle was kind of cool. The ramp was nice, and the the red light multi ball round was kind of fun. Um, but that was an overall pretty fun game. And that was really the game that was really like the first real stern game, you know, opposed to Sega. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. So, so you know, I I gotta imagine that Gary Stern was was probably pretty proud of that game at the time. Yeah, and they made the game quite a few times. Um, you know, even after I had left, uh, it was uh, it was. Yeah, rerun. You know, they ran that game quite quite a bit. Right. So now, overall, it did quite a few copies. Now, what about the? What a great title, too, though. Yeah. You know, even the old Bally Harley Davidsons, you know, still have a good resale value, and you know, are are very collectible. Hmm. Now, you can't go wrong with a license like that. No, yeah, that's another one of those John Borg man, man of the hour, Mister Lucky, getting the good license. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now, now, whose idea was it to use the bike where it was doing a wheelie and all that? That was my idea. Mm-hmm. And were you pretty happy with how that came out? Yeah, you know, the I, I actually laid that game out twice, and the original version of it had six pop bumpers on it. It had two of those units, but the motorcycles were smaller. Um, smaller scale, like the ones that are on the return lanes near the, uh, yeah, the slingshots. Right. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, there were six pop bumpers on that game, and then I remember there was a there was a crisscross ramp that was on an even earlier layout that we never even actually built. Um, but then we found the model for the for the larger bike, and it was a oh I can't remember the name of that bike. It was the the large touring bike with the saddlebags, and then later on in the second version when we went back to remake it, um, they had designed. Uh, Maystill was the company that made the motorcycle, and they had designed a uh, a Fat Boy, which actually looked a lot nicer. I wish we would have had the Fat Boy on the first version of Harley. Hmm. Um, I wasn't crazy about the second art package, but uh, that was that was uh, the second art package was designed after I had, was gone already from from Stern. Now, what was the thinking on changing the after Austin Powers? What was the thinking on changing the art package? Um, I think they just wanted to reintroduce it again, um, you know, with a different art package to, you know, just make more sales. And it was really collectible. So, you know, maybe at some point you may have, you know, a, a total Harley Davidson nut that would, that would want both games. Um, but the first art package was great. And, and there's a, there's a, the first art package, the Backlash, uh, Marcus, Marcus Rothkrantz, uh, painted that that back glass and if you look very closely there's a there's the rider on the bike with the the black face shield mm-hmm. um, if you look very closely there's a girl behind that face shield hmm. a blonde really so i don't know how many people know about that but if you look very closely you can see it huh okay probably not a brochure you know because it wouldn't be large enough to see but if you're actually right. looking at a game you, you can tell now the models, the bike. He's in there. The the bike models used on that. How did you go about getting those and finding those? Um, you know, actually, I found one at a uh, a Target. Uh, 
department store. And I brought it back to work and started to tinker with it. And then the, uh, that unit, um, the motor assembly, you know, it's pretty simple. It's just a plate with a hinge at the back and a, and a motor drive with a little crank arm assembly. Pretty much, pretty similar to how, uh, we lifted up the, uh, the rocket for Apollo 13. Right. So just a different layout. Hmm. You know, so I took the big bike and I laid it on the plate and, you know, started tinkering with the, uh, you know, the, the pitch of the angle that it was going to go up at and, and whatnot. And then I put a trough underneath it with some of those piezo switches in it. Right. Um, those membrane switches. Yep. And, uh, you know, and when it shot the four balls out at one time, you know, I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. It was pretty cool. You know, and there, that was a good place to, that was a good place to lock the balls. Right. So, and it ended up working out pretty well and, I think they've gone back. They, I know they did the second version. They did a gold version. Um, and I'm sure that they've probably done about, you know, total since the very beginning. They probably made about maybe six or seven thousand of those games. Really? Huh. Yeah, no, it was a good, it was a good seller, obviously. Mm hmm. You know. Now, did you have any involvement with, uh, Striker Extreme? Um, not too much. Um, I worked on the goalie mech a little bit uh, with Joe Balser, but I was pretty much just helping him uh, with that game. I wish I would have directed the art because the uh, the art package on that game was just the play field. I've actually I saw one the other day and I was like, I looked at it next. I think it was a play field sitting against a wall, and it was next to a Lord of the Rings. And I compared the two, and I was just like, oh, <laughs> what were we thinking? Huh. So, uh, yeah. So I uh, very little, very little uh, input on Striker Extreme. What about High Roller Casino? Uh, a little bit there too. Um, just layout work and and helping uh, uh, John Norris and uh, and Joe Balser on that one a little bit. I probably laid out. I probably did the mechanical engineering for like the ramps and and a couple of the mechanisms, the the roulette wheel and whatnot. Now, what about Austin Powers? Uh, that was my baby. Okay. Tell me about Austin. Um, Austin Powers actually was a, that was the layout, the production unit was the, uh, was the second layout. Um, the original layout, I had a, it was a three flipper game, and I had an upper flipper on the upper right, similar to like Jurassic Park, and I was shooting the ball across the play field at an angle to where the time machine was, the big spinning mm-hmm. platform with the, the hole in the center right. that would stop the ball in the center. Um, and in the middle of the game, I had something that was similar to the uh, the spinning magnetic platter on Twister, but I had a, a head molded uh, that was mini-me. And you shot the ball, and it went toward the head, and... There was an opto that crossed in front of the head, and when it saw the ball, the magnet would turn on, and the ball kind of jumped up off the playfield and went onto Minnie's lips, like his mouth. He actually <laughs> didn't catch the ball in his mouth, but it just went up and stuck to like his lips and his mouth area, and then it spun around really fast while he went ee ee, you know, from like he did in the movie, right. and then it would release the ball and shoot the ball back at the flipper. <laughs> and then the you know so the whole time machine unit was over on the left side of the game, and then we had that big spinning head in the middle, 
And uh, so we ended up uh, laying out a second version of it to see if we liked it, and we ended up liking the second version better. So it wasn't a money thing. I both uh, worked a lot on the second version. So, so it wasn't a money thing that to... in the game, you know. And uh, so Lonnie's idea was the toilet, and uh, we ended up moving the time machine to the uh, to the center of the game. Right, right. And that actually ended up on another uh, ended up on Lord of the Rings later. Yep, yep. That same unit. Now, Lord of the Rings, it didn't spin. It just caught the ball and fired it back out the hole. Right. Right. Now, what about the Mini-Me spinner? What was the thinking on that? Um, well, I just really liked Mini-Me a lot. And, uh, you know, that in the, in the movie, he, you know, when he, was, when he was in trouble, he never said anything. But when he was in trouble, he was like, you know, making that, that ee sound. And I just thought that was just so entertaining. Um, but we just never, you know, we just didn't go in that direction. Did you meet any of the... Could have been a, could have been a cost issue, but we never really got far enough into it to, to really decide. So... Did you, um, ever meet any of the personalities for the movie? No, I never did. It just got a script ahead of... You have met Mike Myers. Yeah, yeah. But it would have been great. Did you just get a script? Is that it? We've had we haven't we've had problems getting Mike Myers to do things for us, uh, you know, like custom speech and whatnot. Because we we you know we just started to produce Shrek, and he didn't do you know we had to do lifted speech, uh, you know, from the Shrek movie. We didn't get him to do any custom for us. Um, and the same thing with Austin Powers. You know, it was all lifted speech, and. Uh, the only person we got to do custom speech for us for that game was uh, Frau Farbissima, uh, Dr. Evil's love interest. Right. And, uh, you know, it turned out pretty well. Um, you know, she did a really nice job. And, you know, like for the uh, the, the laser beam, right. you know, at the bottom of the game, you know, she's doing, fire the laser. And, uh, you know, and she's very, very animated. So, you know, we got a lot of, you know, we got a lot of custom speech out, of, you know, from her. So you know, that worked out pretty well. Uh, you know, Mike Myers is a busy guy. You know, he's probably got a lot of other things to do besides, you know, help us with our pinball machine. So, hmm. Hmm. now, so you tried to get him, you just couldn't, never pull it off. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, unobtainable. Right. So, and you know, who knows what he had going at the time? You know, on the side or you know, just in his in his life. So when you did this machine were you going from yeah i forget which movie it came out after but did you have scripts to go by or anything in advance um you know i uh the first movie had already been out um you know so we you know that was out on video already so you know we pretty much knew what we were working with with the first movie which right. is always really nice you know similar to you know, like Indiana Jones right now. You know, I, I'm not seeing a, you know, or reading about a new movie for the first time and having to create a game for it. You know, I'm, you know, actually working off of all three movies and the fourth one. Um, but, uh, for Austin Powers, I'm sure we had a script, uh, for the second movie. And, uh, you know, we'd already had the first movie out on video. So, 
you know, so we knew pretty much what we were what we were working with and what and had an idea of what to expect uh, for the sequel. Right, right. Now, what happened um, that you stopped doing pinball after Austin Powers? Um, just a layoff. Uh, I was laid off in 2000, and then I went off and uh, started my own business. Pinball related? And did that for seven years, and, uh, you know, probably for the last couple of years, um, well, I, I'm, I guess I'd have to admit that, you know, I'd always like to have, but uh, uh, in the last couple of years, I was actually, you know, starting to work out a layout, and I wanted to take, you know, a layout to Gary, you know, to see if he would be interested in it. And uh, sometime last spring, uh, I think it was in like May or June, uh, Ray Tanzer called me up and asked me if I wanted to uh, if I wanted to lay out a game, and told me I had uh, six or seven months. And I was like, "Well, that's plenty of time for me," you know. Um, you know, I know that you know some of the other designers like to, you know, like to have a good solid year, you know, to work on a game, but. Um, so they they were you know I guess maybe kind of even in a pinch, and they needed something you know to fill, they needed somebody to fill a slot, and uh, Ray Tanzer called me up and asked me if I was interested, and you know I just uh, you know just jumped at the idea. You know, I had uh, you know for the past few years I definitely had an itch to you know to work on another pinball machine, so uh, you know so I jumped at it, and you know here I am now. Now are you um... back at home? Are are you under contract, kind of like Pat Lawler, or Steve Ritchie, or are you more of an employee like Dennis Nordman? I'm a, I'm a permanent, uh, just like Dennis Nordman is. Okay, okay. And I, I, what was the business that you were doing for the seven years lapse? Um, I did some work in the uh, slot machine industry. I did a few slot machines. Really? Um, I did some. Uh, I did some uh, redemption games with uh, Brian Hansen. Uh, from the old Capcom pinball. Yep. And, uh, and then I went to the total opposite side of the world and I was doing some kitchen equipment designs for McDonald's Corporation through a company called H&K Dallas in Dallas, Texas. Um, and H&K, uh, primarily designs, well, they design hospital and kitchen equipment and, uh, and their biggest account is McDonald's and they provide probably about 50 or more percent of all McDonald's kitchen equipment. Hmm. So I did some pretty new, interesting kitchen equipment designs for McDonald's. Now, on Indiana Jones, when you came into the company, you know, you know, when you rehired, as it may be, I mean, did they say it's Indiana I Jones? I actually start on Indiana Jones. Yeah, that was, yeah, that's where I was going, yeah. Yes, I, uh, I actually started on another layout. Um, I think I was... I can't remember if I started in June or July, but for the first month, I started to lay out a different game, which I can't tell you what it is. I'd really, really like to, though, uh, but I can't. Uh, it may come up again. Um, it's like maybe, I would like to say, on the back burner. Right. Uh, I have definitely not given up on it yet, but uh, they were looking at a license and... Uh, and then they decided. I guess they were unable to to finish the license in time for the for the slot that we needed the uh, the new game in. So they decided to change my theme, and it was between uh, a mystery title, which I can't tell you about yet, 
and IJ Indiana Jones and uh, ended up uh, I ended up getting lucky and getting the Indiana Jones title. Hmm. Now, now on this one, have you seen any sort of movie clips or just working from scripts? Um, I actually went out to uh, San Francisco and met with Lucas, and I saw a slide present, a PowerPoint presentation, and they read me um, an overview of the movie while the slide presentation was going on. So, and at the beginning of this slide presentation, um, uh, they had, uh, you know, the notes that they were going to read to me, and I asked them if I could have copies of those notes, and they said, absolutely not, that I had to take notes. So, as they were reading the story very quickly and showing me stills, I was trying to look at the screen just so I could see the visuals, and I was scribbling notes as fast as I possibly could, and... Between myself and Kevin O'Connor, uh, we put our notes together after we were finished, and and we got a pretty good overview of the the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And and how how do you, how does this movie look like it's going to be compared to the other ones? Fantastic. Hmm. And now, gonna, I think it's going to be right up there with. Uh, I think it's going to be right up there with Raiders. Um, I love all the movies. Um, Raiders was definitely my favorite. Um, most people seem to think that, you know, Last Crusade was really good and Raiders was, you know, fantastic. And a lot of people didn't like Temple of Doom as much. Right. I, I really liked them all. Right. Yeah, I did too. You know, I was a total Indiana Jones fan. Hmm. So they were pretty, holding this pretty close to their chest. They didn't really, weren't showing you too much. Yes. Um, and they still, at that point, when I saw that, that presentation, they had not yet uh, completed the uh, the special effects. I didn't get to see any of the special effects, and um, so I'm really really curious to see how that's going to come off. Um, I have seen a few of the trailers, and it it looks like it's going to be fantastic and very action packed. And so, like, did this make the designing of the game that much more difficult for you? Um, not really, uh, because I pretty much spread it out between, you know, all, all four movies. Um, and they did release, um, a character likeness from the fourth movie and the, uh, the image of the crystal skull itself. So those are things I was able to use, uh, in the event that we were to produce the game prior, prior to the fourth movie. By the time that we had got uh, to a point where we were going to be making production games, they would have already been showing the trailer in the movie theaters, so we wouldn't be we wouldn't be unveiling anything that they would want to have kept secret. Hmm. You know, now everybody knows you know Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is coming, so there's you know there's going to be a Crystal Skull, and uh, you know the movie posters are out now, and so so they did give us a little something that we could put in the game, you know, prior to. Uh, to the movie, you know, the movie premiere dates. And when is your is your game going to be released prior to the movie? Um, we're going to be shipping. We're hopefully going to be shipping prior to the movie. Uh, um, you know, if everything goes well, uh, we will be shipping. You know, we will be shipping prior to the movie. But right now, um, <clears throat> we're we're running Shrek, and they were. They were thinking originally that it was going to be kind of a short run, 
um, because of it, it being a remake of an older game. Um, but it's doing really well, and it looks great. And uh, so it may actually push Indiana Jones, you know, forward a couple of weeks. So we might be we might be shipping right as the movie comes out. So, but we're hoping to get some some games out early, so that you know some of them can hit the movie theaters before the movie hits. Right, right. So now, that would be the that would be the best case scenario. How is Indy Jones doing on test? Great, and it did really well at the Vegas show, at the Acme show this last week. Uh, distributors really like it a lot. Um, uh, you know, people were taking pictures of it, and it's you know we're getting. Good orders already for it, and uh, you know it, it's it's really going to be really going to be a good game. The geometry is great, uh, the effects are great, the display is great. It's it's everything you want in a new pinball. And and, and how many is this? Some you know, I heard something like it was, it's going to have an eight ball multi ball. Yes. So the game actually has an eight ball trough. No. So how is that accomplished? Uh, that I can't tell you. I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you see the game and, and figure that out for yourself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a it's a surprise. And as opposed to telling you and ruining it for you, I would really like you to just experience it when you play the game for the first time for yourself. Is this? I mean, is this like the game that you're most proud of that you've designed? Um, you know what? It's it's definitely, I would have to say, it's definitely right up there with, with uh, Data East Star Wars. And uh, I would be even happier if it did the numbers that Data East Star Wars did, you know, in today's market. Right. Well, you know, I guess you could. I mean, right now I think the the guy that's got the title is Dennis with Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Uh, yeah, Pirates did really, really well. And uh, I think... Uh, you know, uh, out of the last ten years, I think that's the he's the record holder for right now. Right, right. So hopefully you can you can beat him. I would love to. <laughs> you know, I would love to see that happen. Right. So what can you tell me about the Indiana Jones game uh, ahead of its release? Um. Well, who's the programmer, for example? Um, it has a a couple of quite a few toys in it. Um, it has a uh, uh, an Ark of the Covenant that's a you know player interactive toy. Um, it has a the Cairo Swordsman. Uh, if you remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Cairo Swordsman comes out and starts yep. swinging the sword around, and Indiana Jones is tired and he reaches into yeah. into his holster and pulls his gun out and shoots him. Right. Uh, the Cairo Swordsman comes out in the game, and uh, and then disappears again. Um, is that a mechanical assembly? There's a Sankara stone in the game that's somewhat interactive, and then there's a Holy Grail in the game. Um, and then the ramps and the geometry, the game shoots great. It's, I would have to say that, uh, I would have to say it's probably the best geometry that I've ever put up in a pinball machine. No. Better than, better than Star Wars was. Now, when you went to design this, whose idea? I mean, did the movie, did the movie people want you to just concentrate on Indiana Jones four, or did they say, "Nah, it's okay, you can do 
you know, a little bit of all the movies. Yeah, they did say we could do a little bit of everything. And were they resistive to that? Um, oh, no. Um, you know, we, we purchased, uh, you know, we purchased the whole trilogy, um, you know, plus the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and I pretty much spread it out. Um, I would have to say it's a little bit Raiders heavy, but uh, it's it's all spread out pretty well. So there's a little bit of every movie in you know throughout the game. There's not one thing, there's not one thing that's lacking. You know, there's nothing, uh, nothing hidden. It's not like it's all Raiders and no Temple of Doom or no Last Crusade. It's all spread out pretty evenly, but a little bit Raiders heavy, I would say. Now, how did you how did you feel about the Williams Bally, you know, Indiana Jones uh, pinball? Oh, night and day. Um, two totally different layouts. So no influence. I haven't played the old Indiana Jones game. Um, I saw it at Expo, um, but I haven't played it in years. Um, they don't look similar. Uh, there's absolutely, I mean, play field-wise, there's, there's really nothing similar to, you know, the, uh, the Mark's game. It's a, it's a whole new animal. Right, right. Theme wise and playfield wise and layout wise and uh, you know backlash wise the you know totally totally different animal. So about the only thing they have in common is the theme music, right? That's it. <laughs> that that's it. Right, right. And who did the artwork on your game? Uh, Kevin O'Connor. Okay. And who's doing the software? Uh, Lonnie Rock. And is it? It's not a big team effort. He's done a fantastic job. Say again. Everybody has done a fantastic job. Okay. Okay. Well, is there anything else that I? Mark Alvez is doing all the dot matrix. Um, Rob Blakeman and John Rothamel, um, Mike Redoble, and uh, those guys are doing all, most of the mechanics. I uh, laid out all the mechanical uh, devices. And then what I'm doing now is, we, you know, we've got these guys and they're working on SolidWorks. So I would rough something out on AutoCAD and hand it over to them, and then they refine it and, you know, go over it with a fine-tooth comb. And, and the mechanical group is great. You know, back in the back in the day, all the way up until, you know, 2000 when I did Austin Powers, I did all my own mechanical engineering and layout. And uh, you know, so now I've got a lot of a lot of mechanical support. And it is just wonderful. So, so you don't miss that, then, huh? <laughs> uh, you know, actually, I do a little bit, and I'm still doing it. But uh, you know, it's nice to to lay something out and then have somebody going over it with a fine tooth comb, and just to have more eyes on it, you know, than just my own. And it's really nice to have a, you know, instead of laying out a three, you know, a two D drawing. You know, and looking at three views of it, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to, you know, have it on SolidWorks and be able to spin it around and you find uh, interferences and mistakes and things like that a little easier. And uh, they're they're a great group. Has anything got costed out of this design? No. Actually, uh, um, I actually, the Cairo Swordsman, was actually something that we added. So instead of cost cut, cost cutting something out of this game, 
we actually added something to it towards the end. Huh. And, I mean, did somebody just say, we got to have this, or or they said, you got more money? Um, well, actually, uh, Gary is uh, raising the price uh, $100 on the game, so they opened up the bill of material a little bit. So I was able to, to shoehorn in another mechanical device. And is that just for this game, or just he's just going with a price increase? I, I believe so. I think so. I think it's going to be just for uh, for Indiana. Right. Right. Well, the market will probably bear it. I mean, they'll probably be okay with it. Yeah, the title's so good and the game is so good. I think it's you know it's going to make that money back in no time. Right. Right. Well, cool. Is there anything I've left out that I need to ask you? Um. You know, I don't know, but if I think of it. Uh, I can definitely get back to you. Yeah, give me a call. Give me a call. Yeah, sure. Okay, hey, John, I really appreciate your time. Oh, you bet, Clay. It was a pleasure, and I'm sorry it took so long for us to get together, but I have been just up to my ears lately, and it's been really hard to to do much of anything. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I've been just plugging away and plugging away, and, you know, I'm kind of starting to get to the end where I have a little breathing room, and, uh, you know, so now we're, you know, we're on test and, you know, it's, uh, my workload is starting to lighten up a little bit. So, but before long I'll be, uh, you know, I'll be on the next one. So. Right. So it'll all start over again. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, cool. Cool. I did a lot and I'm really glad to be back. It's, uh, you know, it's a great industry and, um, you know, as, as opposed to designing redemption games and whatnot, uh, you know, this is this is definitely the place where I you know like to be. Does does Redemption Games does Redemption Games design pay better than pinball? Um. Well, that's uh, it depends. Um, you know, it depends upon you know how many or you know what I was working on. If I was working on a couple at a time or something like that, you know, depending upon uh, you know what kind of a deal I had worked out. Uh, um, you know, I would say sometimes yes, maybe sometimes no. Um, you know, because I wasn't working for a redemption company. I was just doing projects for, you know, a couple of different companies. And, you know, if I had two projects going at one time, then I would say yes. And, you know, if I had one or I have a project or, you know, nothing happening at the time, then I would say no. So. Now, now as a Stern employee, say you do sell 10,000 Indiana Jones do you get like a commission, you know, or, you know, a, a bonus, like, like, you know, maybe like the old days? Uh, no, it's different. It's a little different now than the old days. But uh, uh, that I don't know if I should go into it. But uh, it's the the bonus structure is a little different now than it used to be. Right. Yeah, because back in the old days, you know, everything, a lot of the pay was based on sales numbers, right? Yes. Not so much now, though, right? Not so much now, yes. Right, right, right. Well, it's a different, it's a different world, I guess. Yep. You know, if, uh, you know, the company does fantastic this year, um, you know, then it'll, you know, then it'll pay off and there'll, you know, there'll be a bonus at the end of the year, whereas, you know, back in the day it was, uh, you know, uh, you know, a small fee per game. Um, and then, you know, back in the day I would get, you know, a small royalty if I did like, mechanical engineering on one game and then there'd be a you know another small fee if i did a you know 
a certain amount of numbers on a design for a game. So, so it's all a little different now. Right. Right. Well, cool. All right, man. Well, thanks, John. And you take care, and I appreciate your time. Yep, and I'll be talking to you. And uh, please give me a call when you when you get to see uh, uh, an IJ game and let me know what you think. All right. Okay. Well, if you could tell me where it is in Chicago, I'm going to be there this weekend. Oh, are you? Yeah. Um, you know what? I'm going to have to get back to you on that tomorrow. Um, I'm going to have to see if it's all right. I just I could tell you. But I don't know if they want everybody on the planet to know where it's at and be flocking this place. And do they move like the test locations all around the city? You know, I don't know how many places they're testing in right now. Um, you know, I know Blackwell sets that all up, and he's got quite a few test locations. Um, but I only know of this one right now, and uh, uh, you know, they've all changed from. For, you know, from back when, you know, when I was there back in the, you know, the late 90s and, you know, up until about 2000. Hmm. How many games do they put out on test? Uh, right now there's just one. Oh, so is that typical? Pardon me? Is that typical? Is it just usually one? Oh, no, usually, they'll, you know, they'll do a few. Um, but, you know, but right now it's one just because we've only... You know, we built a couple of games for the Vegas show. We built one for the show in Italy. Um, we built one for FCC. You know, so probably we'll probably build another half a dozen of them and get them on test and start, you know, sending a few of them out to our, you know, major distributors, you know, over the next few weeks. Um, but we'll just be building a few here and there. Now, when you said one for the... I have a couple more. We'll probably have maybe maybe three or four of them on test locally you know, eventually over the next few weeks, I would imagine. Now, when you said you built one for the FCC, what does that mean? Um, they're like a like a CE or um, UL. They just, they test the game, uh, you know, electrically, you know, to make sure that it's not going to start a fire in your home, uh, make sure that it's rose compliant and whatnot. Do, do you have to do that for every game? Pardon me? Do you do that for every game? Yes. I'm pretty sure we do. Um, you know, I remember a while ago, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I thought we did it like maybe for every every two or three models we'd send them a game. Um, but uh, I think they did, I think they sent a Spider-Man around the time that I started and uh, and we sent an indie to him. But that I, uh, I, you know, don't quote me on that. But uh, I think they do for every game. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, great. Uh, you know, if if uh, if you can, let me know uh, where the game is. Uh, I'd love to play it when I'm in Chicago this weekend. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely get back to you, and I'll either you know talk to you directly, or I'll leave you a message tomorrow. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate it. Take care. Good night. Good one. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Back to you. I'd like to thank John Borg for joining us on TopCast tonight. Really do appreciate his time and uh, appreciate hearing all his stories about game design and how he's gone from a mechanical engineer up to a game designer. And I hope you can all come back soon and listen to us again on TopCast, the Internet Pinball Radio Show.